Welcome to Bamji's Vanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with Peter Evers. We have a great edition of the podcast today as we're going to talk a little about Encore workers and the importance that they could play within our organization and others. Some holiday traditions as well. But uh, we're going to start first by talking a little bit about uh, one of the main challenges for organizations like ours and others, and that is retaining and um, recruiting workers to join the organization. And um, one of the main challenges is the fact that it is difficult to um, provide the type of um, compensation uh, that is really, in my view, needed for the type of labor and work and, you know, in a COVID-19 environment, risk that is associated with many of the positions in our organization and others. And, you know, something that I have advocated for on my radio show and talked a lot about is the need for Congress, uh, for uh, the legislator uh, to give our hero workers, our essential workers, the due that they deserve uh, during the course of this process. And as it gets worse, uh, I think that there's a real need for, you know, heroes pay for these types of uh, individuals. We've seen some states, such as New Hampshire, has put in um, additional funds for people who are working in long-term care facilities. And I think that that's something that would make sense on a national level as we bring in Peter Evers, CEO and president of BAMSI. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you? Good. Now, what are your thoughts on, on this? How do we as an organization, how does the Commonwealth, how does the country uh, go about changing our structure of pay so that the individuals who are in the most important positions – Uh, to our lives, um, such as individuals who work in long-term care, nurses, um, and, uh, you know, the essential workers of this crisis receive the pay that they deserve. Yeah. This is a moment in time that we have to seize on because, you know, I totally agree with you, Chris, that there needs to be hero pay. um, And I know that the legislature is looking at that. But there needs to be a longer-term solution to this. What this has done, I mean, I, I was reading an article the other day that said, what has the pandemic taught us? And it's taught us an awful lot of things. It's taught us that we miss each other's contact. Uh, it, it's taught us that you know many of the things that we took for granted before are not available to us. Um, I was just thinking the other day, as I was passing Black Falcon Wharf, where all of the cruise liners come, there has not been one cruise liner that has come into Boston this year, which is extraordinary. There's a whole industry that's been destroyed. Yet, the essential workers have come to work every day during this pandemic when other people haven't been working. And it's really important that we use this as a springboard to uphold the rights of our essential workers to be paid a living wage, Um, not just a decent wage, but a living wage, a wage where folks don't have to have two and three jobs to make ends meet to pay the rent uh, and put food on the table. So here is a a unique moment in time for us to advocate with the legislature uh, and with the executive branch that while well, many people were home um, doing the right thing, um, you know, containing this virus, some people couldn't do that. And those people came to work every day. Some of them have lived in our programs for two weeks in a, in a row under very different, uh, difficult circumstances. This is a moment in time when we say, okay, Right. Let's let's be real. Going forward, we now know because of this pandemic who is essential in this country. Let's put 
our money where our mouth is. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's fine to say our heroes are essential workers. It's more difficult to say, and we're going to pay them what they're worth. And that's what we need to do. Does there also need to be a restructuring in organizations as well to because it's one thing for a, a nonprofit um, you know that's paying their CEO and their you know executive officers millions of dollars to say, well, state of Massachusetts, Washington DC, we need you to come and give us more money so we can pay our nurses um, more. Um, and it's another thing to, you know, change the structure of an organization to reflect that. And as far as I know, this is not an organization that pays its CEO millions of dollars, <laughs> <laughs> judging from your vehicles. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say that um, you know, that's that's an important aspect of this conversation too. Is that uh, you know there's there's a frustration across the board about a, a wealth disparity um, at the top of organizations, whether it's a grocery store. Uh, or a large company, and the people that do the work that um, have customers come in. I mean, a lot of customers will go into that convenience store because they like talking to the clerk, um, and the clerk makes you know seven, eight dollars mm-hmm. an hour. Is that fair? Does that make does that make sense? And what drives that change? Now we're talking obviously about two different things: nonprofits and for profits. But you know, what do you think? And and is it possible for organizations to to step up and to you know to make that change in regards to their own pay when a CEO is making millions of dollars, is it possible? Yeah, I think it is. I think there's examples of that, Chris. I mean, you know, the I remember when Starbucks came on the on the scene. Starbucks began to offer their baristas um, benefits, health healthcare benefits, and you think, well, so what? But actually, other places weren't doing that. So I and think, many still don't. Yeah. Yeah, and so again, I think it's a moment in time. I think you know what interests me is that three, the three wealthiest people in the country, two of them, continually talk about you're not taxing me enough. You know, one of the other one doesn't, the Amazon guy, but the, but the other two uh, are constantly saying that wealth is inappropriately um, distributed in this country, and maybe this is a time um, when we can actually address this. Although I will say we're a very divided country still. But those people who are earning uh, minimum wage need to be compensated uh, at a higher level. There's no question about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, there's a different topic to go off of that as well, where if if you're the Waltons or if you're Jeff Bezos, I don't understand why you don't pay your employees better. Because when you have that much wealth, it, to me, the only thing that would be left is, you know, how do you treat those around you? And if I had, you know, the wealth that they had and a business model that creates the revenue that they that they do, I mean, how much is is enough? And at what point do you start to feel responsibility to make sure that those people that are doing delivery for you are making the appropriate wage? They have health insurance and to, you know, create and, do, and redistribute the wealth in this country so you're still doing fine <laughs> I mean and that other people are as as well so I feel like government has a role but I also feel like the the nonprofit organizations and the individuals who have been able to accumulate the wealth um, in the in the for-profit uh, industries need to do something as well and you know what do you do in order to get Jeff Bezos to say enough is enough? 
You ask nicely. Have we tried that? Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, you, Jeff, you have a lot of money. <laughs> well, I think, but, but I think it is, a, it, in, in my humble opinion, and, and half the country won't agree with this, but there needs to be a restructuring of the tax base. And, um, and you know, President Biden has uh, pledged to do that for families with an income over 400000 And, you know, that is a, that's a start, right? That's a start of redistributing some of that money back so that states have the ability to have contracts that have monetary values that are better than they are now, because that's where the crux of this is. But also from Bamsey's point of view, Chris, you raise a, a good point. We need to diversify our income. We need to create business um, uh, opportunities that give us uh, more money so that we can spread that wealth throughout the workforce. You know, we have an obligation um, to pay people more, and that's what our recruitment and retention efforts are doing. And that doesn't just mean lobbying the government. It means starting new em- enterprises that are not traditional to what we do. We have to do things differently. No, I think that that's a is a key point. And yeah, talk a little bit about how BAMSI is structured in that realm, where it seems like the different programs are based upon being able to get um, either grant money or um, money from the state or federal government in order to get those programs to run. But that's limited in terms of how much money comes in, and you're also limited in terms of the services you can provide, where it seems that it would make sense to view BAMSI from more of a uh, in more of a for-profit type of sense where you're uh, offering programs that individuals are willing to quote-unquote pay for um, and then you have a couple programs that create a lot of revenue and you can redistribute that revenue throughout the organization to pay people more in the essential services uh, realms, the houses, uh, the uh, indiv- dealing with individuals with behavioral health issues and um, and uh, substance misuse. So you have something that makes money and then you redistribute it. That's right. Just because you work in a program that doesn't um, f- isn't funded that well doesn't mean that you should be a pe- paid just according to that funding. It is a question of, you know, being uh, creating equity in pay across the uh, across the board, but looking for opportunities where more revenue can come into the agency. For instance, we're looking at the moment at uh, pharmacy. You know, would it make sense for Bamsey, given that we have so many people who are on so medica- many medications and a workforce that could take advantage of a pharmacy? Is it worth looking at opening a pharmacy for Bamsey's uh, client uh, person served? And for their their workforce, there is a revenue stream in there that would be interesting. Makes a ton, ton of sense, not just a pharmacy, but also, you know, providing the different medical equipment that is uh, needed. That's right. Also, um, one of the – Bamsey does so many things well, but its facilities team is remarkable. I mean, they're just amazing human beings. How about capturing some of that and selling that as asset management to other organizations perhaps who don't have the resource to do that? So those are some of the things that we're looking at. And I'm you know, always open to new ideas from anybody listening to this. What are other ways that we can look to expand into other markets so that we can generate more income and spread that around? That is Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. This is BAMZ's weekly Humanity First podcast. I'm going to Hand things back over to Peter, who's going to introduce our first of two guests here on the podcast this week. And good morning. And this morning we have Jamie Olson with us, who is our Assistant Director of Bamsey's Community Living Services. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And, um, you know, one of the things that um, drives a lot of concern to us here at BAMSI is this idea of recruitment and retention. I don't think we're any different from any other organization in human services that the rates that are offered to do this incredibly important work are often um, and sometimes below cost. Um, and so we have to make um, the best of what those rates are and do a lot of work around the outside edges of that, i.e. work towards finding different ways of attracting people into the workforce and keeping them in the workforce. And, Jamie, I know that you play uh, an important role in creating um, an esprit de corps, if you like, or a feeling of belonging um, in your home. Um, and, you know, as we look at different groups in the, in the labor market, uh, one of those groups that we, that we think about are those folks who have worked in a career, uh, perhaps completely different from human services, maybe in the financial sector, maybe uh, in industry or something like that. Uh, and I meet a lot of people who sort of want to give back, want to uh, begin a second uh, career. And I think sometimes those folks are re- re- referred to as encore workers, those people who are coming back for an encore in their, in their career. Uh, and I believe that you've been involved in some of that sort of thinking, Jamie. And um, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about Lothrop. Where is it and, uh, and what kind of work do you do? Yeah. Um, well, first off, uh, Lothrop is one of our residential programs in the Taunton Mass area. Um, and first and foremost, I mean, I, I think a big theme at that specific house comes back down to, to family consistency and the majority of our staff. And we've been extremely fortunate that we've had a program manager um, at that specific residence that's been involved with the agency since 1996 and who who himself was elevated to the position of program manager back in 2003. So we've now had a extremely long-term program manager there that's been able to, you know, speak specifically on those specific themes of family and consistency and maturity and that is played down into the staff in which he's had as a resident. Right, Jamie. That, I think that's really important, this idea of creating something that is bigger than yourself and, um, and working towards um, you know, goals that are collective. Um, and I think about the person served as well, and one of the f- some of the feedback that I get um, from parents and loved ones of pe- uh, persons served in resi is that there's a constant revolving door and those folks can't um, you know, maintain long-term relationships with staff because they're sort of re- revolving out. Um, how important is it that you have that sort of consistency, do you think? Oh, I mean, the consistency specifically as it relates to Lothrop has been everything. Um, uh, the person served there have been extremely fortunate from the fact that I have three extremely long-term staff there at the house. Um, I have a gentleman named Mike who's worked with Jared specifically uh, for the past 17 years. I have a staff named Pam who's worked there the past 10 years. And I have another staff, Diane, um, who just announced her retirement, um, but she's been with the, the individuals there the past seven years. So the consistency has been everything at that house. How do you go about creating you know, the appropriate culture within the house. So there is that structure, that discipline, you know, and that that consistency. 
that um, everyone is getting what they need out of the experience because that's something I, I've learned a lot at BAMSI is that it's not just the, the person served that is gaining the quality experience. It is the workers in the house. It is the program managers. Everyone is getting something out of the interaction and, and experience. How do you go about creating that, and how important is your staff to maintaining it? My, my staff at Lothrop Street is everything. I mean, I think a lot of it stems down to the character and leadership Jared instills upon his staff. Um, and then from that standpoint, we've been extremely fortunate that, you know, we've had in a clientele that's been more, ma- more mature in terms of our workforce that's been over at Lothrop Street. So it's not, it hasn't been a workforce that's, you know, taken a first job just out of college. They've, they've been seasoned workers um, who have come back into the field, who are closer to retirement, who still want to stay involved. And on the opposite end of that, we've been fortunate that a couple of them have been involved specifically in this industry um, in their own life, whether it's, you know, through their own professional endeavors or through um, caretaking of individuals themselves. Yeah, I want to build upon that because I think that that's an interesting avenue to, you know, pursue uh, organization-wide in that um, I think that as individuals, you know, live longer um, and also are interested in remaining engaged in the workforce, perhaps not on a full-time basis, but on a part-time basis as they, you know, may collect uh, pensions uh, from their previous work. I think that this is an area that's not just Bamsey, but many organizations need to look harder at. Um, you know, generally, when recruitment takes place, it is looking at, you know, those workers who are coming out of college or coming out of high school, the young worker is the one that is recruited because you, you want to have those people stay for a long period of time. But, um, you know, generally speaking in this organization and in others, that's not necessarily the case. There seems to be a lot of turnover amongst uh, younger workers and with younger workers also comes more, more training and things of, of that nature. So, I'm curious as to what you have found with um, the the encore worker, the worker that this is their you know, second career, um, what that has brought, and if do you think that is a, a direction that would be advantageous, not just for this organization but others to look at um, workers who are you know in the second aspect of their careers. Yeah, I think that's extremely important for us. I mean, it's. The culture that we're currently in right now in light of all of our agencies needing as much workforce as possible, we have to be willing to, to still recruit those college students um, and, and be active in terms of you know recruiting students from nursing programs. Um, but it's extremely important for us to, to still be involved in our general community as a whole and to talk to different parents and to different legislators and to people involved in our general community as a whole that have either taken care of persons served in the past or who are looking for, you know, an opportunity to continue and support and to supplement their income um, by wanting to ultimately have that opportunity to continue to give back. Yeah, I think, you know, Jamie, I think that you're absolutely right. This isn't, there isn't one solution to recruitment and retention, right? It, it, it is, there's many of them. And, uh, you know, I, I was just reflecting on that a little bit. There are not many 
places where the generations mix. Um, you know, I think of weddings, <laughs> I think of funerals, and I think of the workplace. And, you know, what we can learn by growing a workplace that is accepting and understanding of all generations is extremely important. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not a teenager anymore, and or, or indeed <laughs> anything near. But um, I've, I feel like I've learned quite a lot. And I think I, you know, I could certainly um, give advice to my younger self uh, around how um, to create career pathways, uh, and to m- make meaning out of this kind of work. And I, I would see that that would be an incredibly helpful thing uh, in a workplace to have that sort of mixed generation. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's, uh, I can speak to when I first joined BAMZ about two years ago now. Um, I was very fortunate that I had known Jared and Jared's family outside of work, having gone to high school with Jared's sister. Um, so there was at least that personal connection, knowing who he was and how he was brought up and the kind of person that he was. And that, that, that's allowed for our work, work relationship to, you know, to continue to grow. In addition to that, um, one of Jared's long-term staff there, Mike Leary, I had the, the good fortune of knowing um, Mike's son, who was involved in a program in Taunton um, at Pride Incorporated. So I had the opportunity to, to know Mike, Mike's son from my couple of years working with, with that agency beforehand. Um, and just, you know, those kind of just, you know, relationships in which you develop you know, they, they speak volumes in terms of, you know, continuing to move on in the future and kind of the people that you know in the back of your mind, if you're able to, you know, build that perfect staff, you know, what attributes that you want and you want, you would love to be able to bring along. Yeah, and I think it's really, really important to have that cross-generational element that Peter described. And that doesn't always go great as a uh, as a person who is still younger. Um <laughs> Maybe in, <laughs> in the view of some, perhaps other coast. than my kids, um, you know, it, I've I've experienced quote unquote age discrimination a lot, and um, but I've also learned from great mentors along the way as well, and you know, I've I've told the story um, before on my radio show about um, you know how I came to learn so much when I was a teenager selling tractors at Sears because the um, other individuals that I was competing against in this uh, commission-based environment um, were salesmen. And uh, I learned the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything. And it was pro- one of the, the best experiences of my uh, of my life is to um, learn from people who are at that point, uh, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and some in their 70s. Um, and, you know, that was a really, really important experience. So I think having individuals who are of multi-generations in our home seems to you know to make sense for the person served and for um the uh the individuals who are working there yeah and i would just i would just warn you jamie don't buy a used tractor from this man (laughs) (laughs) you learn something every day (laughs) we didn't sell used tractors but i will let the i will let you know that the way the commission worked was that certain tractors had higher commissions than others so guess which tractors were the best tractors? <laughs> the most expensive ones. <laughs> the ones, the ones in which we were able to gain the uh, the highest commission off of. And those would there'd be no rhyme or reason. Sometimes one would have higher commission than the other one week than the other based upon how they wanted to 
to sell it, but whatever the uh, the tractor was that um, was uh, had the highest commission was the best one we had on the pad, and that would change from day to day. <laughs> That's hilarious. But uh, but that, you know that actually does make me think, Jamie, about a, maybe a, a final question, which is, you know, what are you? Th- I mean, you're one of the you're one of the thought leaders in this organization. You're, I, I know that you're constantly thinking about these things. But what, have you thought about different ways of um, incenting people in the workforce, bringing in people? Because we, as you know, and you're a part of, I believe, the recruitment retention group, you know, we're looking at all of these different things. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you, you know, I guess the question is, why do those people stay? Why do people leave and why do people stay? And, fi- and sort of unbraiding that and finding out what some of those best practices are or what we should be doing now. But uh, what are your thoughts about that from the field? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone in a leadership position, we need to be willing to put ourselves in the predicament of being who our staff is. Um, if that means us picking up a specific shift to, to work in, within ratio on the floor to help out, I think that's going to speak volumes to the staff. And we have to incorporate our staff in our daily, everyday conversations as well, getting to know their thoughts on the good, the bad, and the ugly that is involved in in the work in which we're um, to get their feedback. Their feedback is just as important as anyone else. More so. And, and being able to, to attain their feedback in, you know, in real life is only going to speak volumes to how we're continue to able to, you know, reach out to additional staff, but keep the great staff that we do have working for us day in and day out. Well, Jamie, really appreciate your time, appreciate your work within the organization, and look forward to uh, chatting again soon. Thank you so thank, much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks that, for your time. That is Jamie Olson, the Assistant Director for Bamsey Community Living Services, joining us here on the podcast. Now to Peter to introduce our next guest. Hi, everybody. And this morning, um, we have with us Yulia Lego, who is our Executive Administrative Officer. Hi, Yulia. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And thank you for coming on the podcast. And I think today we're going to talk, um, we're going to get in the festive mood a little bit. Um, and I believe we should give ourselves permission to do that after a year that we've just had this will be a festive season like any other. In fact, I was um, remarking to my partner um, as the 13th wreath went on the windows this weekend that perhaps we were doing a, overdoing it a little bit, but uh, I, I, I did get some pushback, uh, which, was, which is around this, listen, this has just been the most difficult year and everybody should be celebrating as hard as they can under the circumstances that we have. And that, if that means putting 15 wreaths up, that's okay with me. Um, but, you know, today I thought it would, we thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about holiday tra- traditions. And when you think of what a complex and diverse agency BAMSI is, when you think that the, of the 1,700 or so people at work here, there are 1,700 different stories of how th- they and their families uh, approach celebration. Um, and uh, we've been thinking about that. You had sent out a wonderful little email over the uh, over the weekend, uh, Yulia, talking about uh, Old St. Nick, which I thought was a great um, uh, little piece around how uh, celebrations happen in different parts of the world. So, um, what what are you thinking in terms of a, a celebration in the in the month of December? 
Well, looking at December, there there's so many holidays and so many different ways of celebrating those holidays. I mean, we think traditionally of, I think, the big three, Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa happening in December. But, you know, there, there's Solstice and, and Yule, which is on the 21st. Um, there's, you know, the Feast of St. Nicholas, which is was yesterday on the 6th. Um, you, you put out a nice little story about, and I'm going to say it wrong, Hogmanay? Hogmanay. Hogmanay. How about Festivus? Festivus? I feel like we need to have a Festivus as <laughs> For well. For the rest of us. For the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, I was going to include Festivus, and I, I, <laughs> I was worried it would lose too many people. But yeah, Festivus. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of kidding. About like 25% <laughs> kidding. Favorite sign. I think anyone who watches Seinfeld is a Festivus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there, there's all sorts of different things that go on in the world. And, um, you know, I, it, I, I, I think I mentioned in that, um, in that piece that I wrote earlier that, um, you know, India is an incredible place for festivals and holidays. In fact, mm-hmm. every other day, it seems, is a, is a, uh, is a festival time. And, of course, um, Diwali is, is, the, is the big one that, think about, that people think about, the Festival of Lights, but there are, you know, these celebrations to each of the gods like um, Lachmi and, um, um, and the elephant whose, name, uh, whose, whose yeah. name I forget at the moment. But, um, but this idea of celebrating life on, on a continual basis and bringing some sort of uh, fun uh, into lives. I, I often think it's no coincidence that that might be happening in December because in a lot of the world it's a cold, not all of the world of course, it's a cold time uh, when we need to be reminded perhaps of, uh, of happier times. Um, but why do you think these, these um, holidays sort of settle around this time of the year? Well, for those countries or those parts of the world where it is dark, I mean, we're talking about the, the shortest days um, and the coldest seasons, and you need some hope and some joy um, to, to get through. It's, you know, from, from a very academic perspective, you know, calendars tend to um, coalesce when you have um, different cultures coming together and they start to share their holidays. But I think it's just it's a season where people want to be excited and come together as family um, and friends. And to, you know, in South Africa, the Day of Reconciliation is on the 16th of December. And that's just how it fell because of the, the situation there and when things kind of coalesced. So I, I don't know if there's a rhyme or reason to it. I think it's just a we're very lucky to have a month with so many holidays. And I think it's so important to embrace all of those holidays. And, you know, we've seen an attitude which has become kind of pervasive of, um, well, you know, we shouldn't celebrate anything because we'd leave something out. And <laughs> I just don't believe in that at all. And um, obviously to each uh, sector, um, you know, they can make their own decisions and have the rationale for those decisions. But I think it's so important in, to do what we are doing in to highlight all the different um, celebrations and to embrace those celebrations and to learn about those celebrations and to not be uh, threatened uh, by them. And I think that that's really what takes place a lot. People do not want to hear about other uh, things because it, it in some way kind of threatens their their belief system and um, 
to me, I think you know the more knowledge we have, the more we learn, the more that we understand, um, the better. And uh, I think that you know this is the the best way to approach things is to, in fact, discuss all of them. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I think about traditions, um, traditions are um, common to a country, to a um, religion, to a race. They're also common to a family as well, or to a town. And I think, uh, you know, we've been encouraging people to share those stories, and we've heard two or three of them, Yulia, I know, over the last week. But I was thinking about um, about uh, in, in Hull, where I come from, which is a, a fishing port, uh, King William uh, I, way back, centuries ago, came to visit Hull. Nobody ever came to visit Hull, so it was kind of a big deal. And they put a statue of him on a horse um, in this city center, and there was a pub named the King Billy that was next to it. And every Christmas, they would put out um, a pie uh, and a pint of beer for King Billy to get off his horse, come into the pub and drink. Well, he didn't actually do that, but the, it became very famous in the town. And the landlord would get up very early in the morning and come and drink the beer and uh, eat <laughs> the pie. And, the, and everybody believed that King Billy came down off his horse for hundreds of years. I just love those kind of stories, you know, and how they become law uh, in families, in households, in cities and countries. I think it's just a, fascinating. It really is. And in a country like the United States, where there's so many traditions that mix, so many different families from so many different countries intermarry and come together, and we get these wonderful hodgepodges of traditions that are, you know, a little bit of everything. And you, you can't quite always suss out where they came from, but they become really embedded in the culture of that family. So how can... Um can individuals get involved in this within the organization? And if, if they have stories that they would like to tell in terms of how their family um, you know, celebrates uh, whichever holiday they they celebrate and some of the traditions that uh, that Peter is describing, and also how do you see you know this uh, celebration this month um, and bringing together these different uh, divergent celebrations um, continuing? Well, we have a couple different ways. I know some people have emailed Peter directly, and you know they're welcome to reach out to me as well and share their stories. We're having a listening session on Thursday the 17th um, for all employees to come and share and hear each other's stories and, and talk about their own traditions. Um, we also are doing a, a recipe book. Um, we're asking anyone at BAMSI who has a family recipe that they cook around this season, because it is such a culinary season, um, to share that along with, you know, a little bit of background about why it's important to them or, or what, um, what, what's the reason for it. Um, and we're going to put those together into a nice holiday cookbook that we can share with everyone and kind of celebrate our different traditions. Are there uh, any restrictions on English people giving food recipes? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's probably a very good point. <laughs> English are well known for their... Um, Cuisine, yeah. <laughs> or lack thereof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Yulia, this it's a cautionary is... tale. Maybe put <laughs> that in as a cautionary tale. Please do not make this. <laughs> yes, that's right. It was true that the British Empire had to be formed because the food was so bad they had to get spices from all over the world. 
<laughs> That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, Yulia, I thank you so much for coming uh, on the show. And also look out for uh, emails uh, that with more stories of celebrating in December uh, over the next few days. And uh, we hope to see everybody uh, on the 17th uh, for the listening session. Yulia, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. That is Yulia Lago joining us here on Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan along with Peter Evers. Have a great rest of the day, everybody. Mm-hmm.